So I think there are times when uh, I preach, when we go through text and the Word, and my, my, I think there's opportunity to immediately respond, for people to respond, and, and for there to be this immediate visible fruit that comes from that response. And, and I, I certainly don't mean that this message today is not one to respond to. It absolutely is. But it does occur to me that if we respond to this message today, our visible, uh, the visible evidence of that response is probably not something we're, we're necessarily going to see tomorrow. The, the fruit of our response, the outcome of our response is not necessarily something we're going to see by the end of the week. But, but I think if we go back to our first sermon in the parable series, if we think of the Word of God as a seed that plants and that grows, if today, this sermon and perhaps next week's, if they connect with us and there's a seed that is planted within us, I think the evidence of that and the fruit of that will be visible weeks from now, months from now, even next year or the year after. And so I share that to, to say I think this is extremely important. And I think we also have to be ready in our response to a message like we're going to see today. We have to be ready for patience and not growing weary in doing good that we might see the outcome from it. And I hope what I mean by that will be very obvious to you by the time we get to the end of today. So let me go back a couple of weeks. The parable of the two debtors. Two debtors, two people who owed God something or owed a creditor something. The creditor represented God. Jesus said, which one will love the creditor more when he forgives their debt? And the response was the one who had the greater debt. And we learned from that parable the importance of gratitude that those who are most aware of what God has done for them are the people who will be filled with the most affection for Him. Little awareness for what God has done will probably equal little affection for God. Higher, more awareness, deeper awareness for what God has done for you will equate to greater affection for God. The week after that was the parable of the unmerciful servant. The unmerciful servant. The exact same principle applied there, except it was outward toward other people. That the gratitude that we have for our debt being erased, paid by Jesus, that gratitude leads us to release others from the debt they owe us. Because when we understand the debt Jesus has paid on our behalf, we are grateful and willing to release others out of our gratefulness. So again, when we have little gratitude for what Jesus has done, we probably will have a really hard time releasing other people from their offenses. But when we strongly are thankful and aware of all that Jesus has paid on our behalf, we have this willingness, this desire to release others And so those two parables are directly connected to the two great commandments. To love God and to love others. And I think in response, 
the call that we have is we should often and deeply think about our own salvation. You should often and deeply think about your salvation and what Christ has done for you in an ongoing way. And that deep thinking about the gospel is what will stir in you love for God and love for others. Last week's parable, the Good Samaritan, took us deeper into love for others. What does it practically look like to love your neighbor? What is it? What would you expect to see in your life when you truly love your neighbor? And so we were challenged by that parable that we should work to ease the suffering of others. Even people who oppose us with their belief system. Not just people who we like and are like us, but people who are different from us. We should work to ease their suffering. And now today... And next week, we're exploring this idea of loving our neighbor even deeper by considering today the parable of lost things and next week the parable of the prodigal son. And we're going to see how love for neighbor means being deeply concerned for the salvation of lost souls and having a longing for people to come home to God and His church. So right from the very beginning, I've said this several weeks going through this series, parables challenge us. So here's the challenge right away at the beginning of this message. How much do you care about people who don't know Jesus? That's for you to answer. That's for me to answer. How much do I care about that? And what does it look like to really care? If we say, well, I do care. I, I, I care about people coming to know Christ. Now the next question is, what does that care look like? And Jesus is going to help us with that today. So let's set the stage for these parables that Rob read to us just a moment ago. The stage is in the first couple of verses of Luke chapter 15, which were not in your text. It's very simple. Luke tells us, that at this point in the ministry of Jesus, tax collectors and sinners were spending time with Jesus, and Jesus was spending time with them. And in the Gospels, tax collectors and sinners represent people outside of faith in God. What we would call the lost, what these parables refer to as the lost. And Jesus is spending time with them. And the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees and the scribes, they are upset at this. And they are complaining about it, and their complaint was simple. And here it is in the text. Jesus welcomes sinners and eats with them. That was their complaint. Disciples, your boss welcomes sinners to come and be near Him. And He eats with them. He goes to their homes. And He sits and He has a meal with them. This is a problem, they said. Now, I don't think the right conclusion there is that these religious leaders hated the idea of converts to God. As a matter of fact, in Matthew 23... Jesus indicates that this same group of people, scribes and Pharisees, 
were willing to travel over land and sea to make a convert. The issue was not converts. The issue was the friendly, personal demeanor that Jesus took toward these sinners. That's what upset them. They called Him, in criticism, a friend of sinners. That was a term that they used. That's what they saw. They saw that Jesus was personal and caring, hospitable to those outside the faith. Honestly, He was personal and caring and hospitable with people that had really bad reputations, that were well known for sinning. And Jesus brought them close to Him, shared meals with them, spent significant time with them, quality time with them. He taught them, and we can assume He listened to them, answering their questions, dialoguing with them. And this didn't just totally confuse the religious people of that day. It was egregious to them. They saw it as sinful. To them, to associate with drug addicts, and prostitutes, and drunkards, and thieves, was to risk their own defilement before God. They loved their religion and their religious acts and their reputation before men more than they loved lost souls coming to God. And they failed to see that all of their religious system was supposed to lead them to love God more and love people more. So in response to their anger, Jesus tells two very similar parables within their earshot. The first one, he tells of a man who has 100 sheep, but one of them wanders off. That's how a sheep becomes lost. They stray. The man, in his concern and his care for that one lost sheep, leaves the 99 that he does have, and he pursues that one that's lost until he finds it. And when he finds it, Jesus says he is overjoyed. He doesn't scold it, doesn't drag it. He puts the sheep on his shoulders, and he carries it back to the fold. And he does something that's a little odd, probably to those readers and maybe to us. As he's walking home with this lost sheep, he calls out, yells to all of his friends and neighbors in their homes or standing beside the road as he's walking. And he tells them, rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. The one that was lost, I found him. Rejoice with me. And then immediately he tells a second parable of a woman who has ten silver coins. Most scholars think Jesus was referring to a bridal headdress, which in that day would have had ten coins in it. So you might picture here 
a bride looking for part of her wedding ring or band that she has lost. She gets out of light. She can't sleep. She can't rest. She goes throughout her home looking in every nook and corner until she finds the coin. And when she finds this one coin, she does the same as the man with the sheep. She calls out to her neighbors and to her friends, Good news! Rejoice with me! I found that lost coin I was looking for. Share in my joy as I celebrate. Jesus is very clear with us. Like We don't have to wonder what the meaning of these parables are. He tells us in verse 7 and in verse 10, lost things in these parables, the sheep and the coin represents the sinners, those outside faith in God. They are found when they come to faith, evidenced by repentance. When they repent and turn to Him, that is representative of them being found by God. And joy pours out from God. God is the one who is overjoyed at this lost thing of His. God is the one who is overjoyed when His lost people come home. So, with that context and that parable, let's look at some observations from the text. If you're a note-taker and you have one of the worship guides, there's some fill-in-the-blanks here if you want to follow along. The first observation that I want to make to you this morning is that Jesus conducted Himself in such a way that even those who did not have faith in God felt drawn to Him. Jesus conducted Himself, He lived His life in such a way that even people who did not have faith in Him, did not have faith in God, they were drawn to Him, to want to spend time with Him. There's a big comparison in this text. The religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, who are so angry at what they see, they did not welcome sinners to be near them, and sinners wanted nothing to do with them. Sinners did not want to spend time with them. These religious people, their attitude toward outsiders was indifferent at best, repulsive at worst. They either ignored them and didn't want anything to do with them, or they were completely put off by them. Their lack of care, their lack of compassion, was ultimately tied to one thing. They lacked gratitude toward God for their own salvation. They lacked gratitude toward God for the forgiveness of sins. You see, these religious guys, their whole system thought, I've earned my forgiveness. I'm, I'm a good person. I do all the things God's told me to do, and I do more. We have all kind of great laws that we've set up, and we obey all of them. We've earned our spot. See, when that's how we think, we don't have to be grateful. The moment you let a single thought in your mind 
that somehow you've done one single solitary thing to earn or gain your salvation, you lose gratitude. And because they had no gratitude for what God had done for them, because they were not aware of the value of their own forgiveness, they didn't care about lost people. If they really did, if they really understood the value of forgiveness and what God had done for them, they would celebrate at any small step someone took to come toward God so that they could receive the gift that they had received. Jesus, on the other hand, Jesus had the heart of God. Now, when I say to you that He conducted Himself in such a way that the lost felt drawn to Him, I do not mean Jesus joined them in their sin. This is something that we have to understand. Jesus did not act differently around lost people than He did His disciples. Jesus did not act in such a way to make them feel a little bit more comfortable and at home. Jesus had a heart for God and a heart for people, and He lived that among the religious and the irreligious. The reason these people felt so comfortable around Jesus was not because He conformed to them, but because He was steady in His love for those who were lost. He cared for them. He cared about them in a way that they knew was sincere. When you really love someone, when you really have genuine care for someone's soul, they can't deny that. They might ignore it. They might push you away. They might in anger not want anything to do with you, but at the end of the day, they're not mad at you. But they can tell your sincerity. Jesus cared about these people, and they knew that. They never felt pushed away by Jesus. They never felt like Jesus was worried about being seen with them. He openly spent time with them. He welcomed them. He loved being with them, and they knew that. In your notes, I think this is an important conclusion. Tender-hearted acts of goodwill are not opposed to holiness. Tender-hearted acts of goodwill are not opposed to holiness. I, want, I wanted to be as descriptive as I could. So I could have put there merciful acts or acts of compassion, but I, I want to be as descriptive as I can in how Jesus treated people who were outside the faith. He deeply loved them. He deeply loved them. Matthew chapter 9 communicates that when Jesus saw the crowds harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, He was moved with pity for them. Like deep in His soul, He was moved to the point of grief and sorrow in seeing the lost people around Him. Yes, church, we have to compare how we view lost people 
compared to how Jesus did. We have to compare how we feel about lost people compared to how Jesus felt about them. In the world we live in today, church, if we do not govern ourselves, we will have nothing for people who are lost except anger and bitterness. Jesus had compassion for them. And make no mistake about it, they opposed Him in their beliefs. But He loved them. And He didn't just love them from a distance. He got up close and personal with them to minister to them. Obviously, they had to be willing to let that happen. It's not something He forced upon them. But they were drawn to His sincerity. He acted in ways that showed His concern. He didn't say, I love the crowds, but let me just stay here with my disciples and love them until they change. He went to them. He let them come to Him. And He showed acts of goodwill out of His love for them. But at the same time, He never stopped calling them to repent. He never stopped calling them to repentance. That word repentance means a change of mind. When Jesus was with them, when He loved them, when He ate with them, when He spent time with them, I guarantee you they talked about normal things. He asked about their life. He got to know them, their family. He asked them about their history. Yes, He did those things. And He also implored them to change their mind about God. To change their mind and to love God with all of their heart. And whether they ever did that or not, or they believed Him or not, they knew He was sincere. See, church, we, we think those things are opposed to one another, that we can't do both. We fall in this trap of thinking that if we're, if we're really holy, we can't love and associate with sinners. And if we love and associate with sinners, we got to kind of change who we are and not be holy. And Jesus says, no, you don't. You do both. So you've got to find yourself in the parable. Some of us, our temptation is to think if we really love God, we can't associate with sinners. At least not the really bad ones. The thought of befriending certain kinds of sinners who do certain kinds of things, inviting them into our home, taking them to dinner, that seems really iffy. Are there certain sinners that if you were seen with them, you would be worried about your reputation? You would be worried about what someone else thought? Maybe it's not reputation that you're worried about. Maybe the concern is, what would that do to my kids? How would that affect them if I brought these kinds of people into our home? Jesus opposes that attitude. He teaches us that we can have compassion for the lost. We should welcome them. Eat with them. Show them acts of goodwill in hopes that they will repent. We're not merely to say we love them. I hope they get saved. We are to look for opportunities that God gives us to draw near to them and let them draw near to us. Now, I want to say one quick word 
of what I hope is wisdom here before I move on. Younger believers, when I say younger believers, I mean those of you who are young in age, kids, teenagers. I also mean young in salvation, a newer believer. When you go to associate with those who don't know Jesus, and what I see is that young people usually have a real quickness to want to do this, even more so than those of us who are older. But when you go to do that, you have to be very careful about your own standing before Christ. And what I mean by that is you can quickly lose your own footing if you start trying to minister and associate with someone who is tempted in the same way you would be tempted. And so what I would what I would suggest to you is this should be done in groups or maybe paired up with someone who is a little older and has more experience. Jesus sent people out two by two to minister. And I think He often did that even with older people and younger people being together, mature and immature being together. It's something that we do, He calls us to, but we have to be wise in the way that we do it. The old adage is, they teach you in... Those who are taught to be lifeguards, that if you're trying to save a drowning person, the first thing you have to do is secure your own vest. Otherwise, that drowning person will take you down with them. So as we do this, we do this with a great deal of wisdom. But we are called to do it. Those of us who are older and more mature, often we're more prepared to do this, but we're less eager to do it. Now, some of us, that's not our issue. Some of us, our leaning is not to stay away and not associate with sinners. Some of us, our leaning is to think, I want to do that. I want to be with lost people. I hope to see them come to Jesus. But to really love them, I, I don't need to talk about sin. I don't need to talk about repentance. If I do that, that that's going to seem really offensive to them. That's going to push them away. Well, here's my question. What's the point? If you say, I want to associate with them, I hope they come to know Jesus, but if you never talk to them about sin and repentance, what are you doing? There's an old phrase that people like to throw around. It's actually attributed, I think, to the wrong person. But it's preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. Sounds great. Completely foolish. The gospel is to be preached and heard. It's the good news that is given through words. We think we should love people apart from sharing truth with them. But again, Jesus opposes that notion. Love people deeply. Show them acts of goodwill. Invite them into your home, take them to dinner, buy them coffee, spend time with them, get to know them. But talk to them about changing their mind about God. If they know you're sincere, they can receive that. If they don't, it's not you they're rejecting. I heard an old pastor one time give a quote 20 years ago, and it's always stuck with me. I've shared it here many times. Truth 
without love is brutality. Love without truth is hypocrisy. If all you want to do is use truth and give someone truth, then you're just trying to hammer them into submission. That's brutal. But if you say you love someone and you don't share the truth of God's Word with them, that's hypocritical. You don't really love them. Keeping going, our observations in the text. The last one. God seeks the lost that they might be saved, and He seeks them through His people. God seeks the lost that they might be saved, and He seeks them through His people. The plain meaning of these two parables is that God seeks after lost people. He's not merely sitting on His throne waiting for people to come to Him. He pursues the lost. He seeks after them. This is active. They need to be found because they can't save themselves themselves. The sheep was not just going to find his way back. That's why the shepherd had to go get him. The coin wasn't just going to show back up in the bridal headdress. That's why the woman had to look for it. Lost people can't find themselves. God finds them. God has to seek them. He's the shepherd that leaves the 99 to go look for the one. Jesus doesn't mean that He doesn't rejoice over the 99. doesn't mean He doesn't delight in their obedience. He does. But He knows they're safe and He knows there's one that's not and He goes after the one who's not. He seeks after them to lovingly pick them up and bring them into His fold. He's the one searching for that one coin. He's lighting a lamp. He's sweeping every corner of His earth to find the one that is precious to Him that is lost. That's why according to Peter, what Kevin shared earlier, Christ has not yet returned. Why is He delayed? Because we are living in the patient love of God, waiting for others to repent. So, that's good news. God seeks after the lost. Here's the danger. We as the church say, yes. Praise God. He seeks the lost. Amen. But here's the second part of that. He seeks them by His Spirit in us. We're not part of the plan. We're not plan B. God's not just seeking the lost and finding them and sometimes He uses us. Like His Spirit is in us. And He is seeking the lost through us. Yes, God can bring people to Himself in all kinds of ways. Yes, I believe God actively speaks to people today through His Word and in other ways in line with His Word. But in the Bible, it is clear. His plan to bring lost people to Himself is His people. Not as pastors, not as ministers, not as leaders, His people. All of us. No exceptions to that. None.
The Spirit of Christ works in His people and He acts through His people. One of the clearest passages of this is 2 Corinthians 5.20, where Paul says, Church, if you are saved, you are an ambassador for Christ. And he goes on to explain what that means. It's not simply a phrase that we use. It's not simply something that we've put on youth groups and college ministries. Paul used that language to say, God is making His appeal to us. His appeal through us. His appeal to who? To the lost. He makes His appeal to the lost through us. And then he goes on to further say and clarify, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's what it means to be an ambassador. That we plead with people, change your mind about God. Change your mind and love God with all of your heart. Change your mind and love Him with all of your soul. Change your mind. That's the pleading we make. We can't simply live a good life in front of them and hope that they come to that understanding. The good life and good works helps, yes, but the message is a pleading, be reconciled to God. Change your mind about Him. Repent. If you are a believer in this room, if you claim Christ, it is not a question of whether or not you're an ambassador. It is a question of what kind of ambassadors are we. That's the question. Christ was kind to sinners. He loved them up close. He spoke to them the truth of God's Word. When He did that, He revealed the heart of God that seeks after lost people. And God still has that same heart. And God is still seeking after lost people. Jesus is still pursuing people. And He does it today through His people. Through you. He's still seeking the lost through His people. And here's what makes you a really great ambassador. Alright, so if you think of an ambassador, an ambassador is someone who represents... Someone else, they're sent somewhere, usually to strangers, to a strange place, foreign place. They're sent there to represent the one who sent them. Here's what makes you a great ambassador. We were once the lost. We were the lost that were found. It doesn't matter how you came to Christ. Maybe it was a very early age, or maybe you were much older. Maybe it was kind of an ordinary pathway, or maybe it was an extraordinary pathway. But it is true of every believer, you were once the lost and He found you. And He chooses to find us at different times and seasons and ages through different people. And He sought us and He found us through others, and now He sends us to do the same thing. Look at this life truth with me. When we share the hospitality of God, we also have the opportunity to share in the joy He feels when a sinner repents. When we share the hospitality of God, we also have the opportunity to share in the joy that God feels when a sinner, when a sinner repents. 
Look at verse 10. This is really interesting to me. I tell you, in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. If you read that real quick, you would conclude angels are rejoicing. That's not actually what that verse says. They might, but the verse says there is joy in the presence of God's angels. Maybe some of the people that are rejoicing or some of the rejoicing that is happening is from that great cloud of witnesses that Hebrews talks to us about. We're not exactly sure who they are. But Hebrews talks about a great cloud of witnesses that see what is happening. But I do know this, and I say it with certainty because it's the way Jesus put it. Angels are at the throne of God. God is rejoicing over sinners who come to salvation. And angels get to experience that. God rejoicing over a person turning to Him. By name, He rejoices over them. He delights in those who repent and turn to Him. And then He shares that joy with us. I talked about this probably so many times, but sharing consummates your joy. It completes it. When you love something, always use the examples, you go to a great restaurant or see a great show or movie, you want to share that with others. That completes your joy. God is joyful when sinners repent and He shares that joy with us. I don't know. That should impact us. When you seek the lost with a heart like God has, when you do acts of goodwill to build bridges of relationship, you are doing what we talked about in our first parable. You're tilling the ground the soil of someone's heart. You're planting a seed. You're watering a seed. At the end of the day, you have no ability to make that seed grow. None. The Bible says only God can give growth. But you have hope that He will cause growth. And when that time comes, you get to share in the joy of His harvest. When someone comes to know Christ, the further you are away from that person, the less joy you'll have in their salvation. But the closer you are to someone, the more you've invested in them, the more time that you have spent working that ground and planting that seed and watering that seed, the closer you are to that person when they come to know Jesus, the greater joy you will experience. And the joy that you have is the joy God is allowing you to receive as He rejoices over that person. It's not joy that you have come up with. It's His joy in you. And if we never spend time trying to reach lost people, we will miss out on that joy. One of the most powerful tools that God has given us is hospitality. To welcome 
and eat with the lost to make them feel at home. Not by changing who we are and what we do so they feel like we're conforming to them. Remember the most ridiculous thing I ever heard? All right. It's not the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. But I remember a really ridiculous thing I ever heard was a pastor one time defending his church starting an Easter Sunday service singing Highway to Hell. And his response was, when people come here, they need to hear their music so they feel at home. That's not how we reach people. By offering them the world. That's our, that's our thinking. God's thinking is offer them me. In my character, kind, patient, loving, merciful, offer them me. Let me do the rest. To invite people into our homes, to invite them to dinner, to open up our lives to them, to be generous to them, to go be near them, show them compassion. That's what God does. He's hospitable. One of the most powerful things that we can do is be hospitable to people. To build a bridge that they might come to know Jesus. Years and years ago, we're all getting old. In a small group, Josh and Jennifer's house, I was introduced to one of the most profound testimonies of salvation that I have ever heard. And to this day, it still impacts me. Testimony was of a lady named Rosaria Butterfield. I'm going to share just a bit of her testimony. As I do, I'm going to share it the way she does. Don't get lost or offended in some of the details. I just want to read it the way she says it. She was a self-professed gay, liberal professor of English and women's studies at a liberal college who attended a universalist Unitarian church and her belief that Christians and their God Jesus was, quote, stupid, pointless, and menacing. She wrote an article published in their paper in her town to attack what she called in the article the unholy trinity of Jesus, conservative politics, and patriarchy. That article generated so much response that she said she put two boxes of files, file folders on her desk, one for her hate mail and one for her fan mail. But she said she got one letter and she didn't know which box to put it in. It was from a local pastor, a guy named Ken Smith. She said it was a kind letter, an inquiring letter. She, he didn't argue with her. He didn't blast her. He wasn't bitter toward her or angry. But he also challenged her. He asked her, how did she know she was right? He asked her, do you believe in a God? He asked her, how did you arrive at your conclusions? He asked her to think about those things. And then he offered her an invitation 
that if she wanted to consider them with someone else that believed differently, his home was open and he would love for her to come to dinner with him and his wife. She said she read that letter. She had no idea what to do with it. So she crumpled it up and threw it away. Later that night, she took it back out of the trash. She unfolded it and put it on her desk. And she said for the next few weeks, she just looked at it. She had always known Christians to be the ones who mocked her on Pride Day and seemed really happy that she and everyone that she loved was going to go to hell. But not this guy. He engaged with her. So... She accepted his invitation. She would go to dinner at his house. But she said she had one real primary motivation. She was getting ready to write a book about how horrible Christianity was. And she thought this would be good research. But something else happened. That pastor and his wife became her friends. She said they entered her world. They gave her books to read and they accepted books that she gave them to read. They talked openly with her about any topic she wanted to talk about, from politics to orientation. She said they never acted like a relationship with her was defiling to them. They ate with her. Ken would pray at dinner. He would pray very serious prayers like she had never heard before. He repented of his own sin in front of her. He thanked God for everything. She said she became convinced that whether or not God was real, the God Ken served was holy and firm, but full of mercy. And that relationship continued for two years. And she said in those two years, they never one time invited her to church. They brought the church to her. But one day, early on a Sunday morning, getting out of bed in the lifestyle that she was living in, Rosaria went to Ken's church. She heard preaching. She heard the promises of God. And she said they seemed to roll over her like waves. And then, in her words, one ordinary day, she surrendered her life to Jesus. And today she is a very renowned Christian speaker, married to her husband, the pastor of his own church in their small town. Not every act of hospitality is going to look like that or produce that result. But here's what's really, really clear. Religious leaders who keep a distance from sinners because they're afraid to be defiled by their presence and their lifestyle, criticizing them and arguing with them and judging them, did nothing to show them the heart of God. Nothing. Jesus showed them the heart of God. He was intentional. He was kind. He was caring. He was generous. He was hospitable. He did good to them. He wasn't afraid of them. As one pastor put it, part of being like Jesus is having the courage to let people hurt your reputation. 
But he didn't act like them. He didn't act like what they were doing was okay. He didn't conform to their way of thinking. But he associated with them that they might be saved. He worshipped God in front of them. He honored God in front of them. He spoke truth to them. Gently, kindly, firmly. And agape, that's our call. It's what it means to be an ambassador. God still seeks the lost. He does it through us. You are an ambassador of Christ, pleading with people to be reconciled to God, called to live in the same manner that He lived. And maybe one day, God will give you a rosaria to rejoice with after years plowing the field. If you would, take your worship God out and look at the front. This prayer focus for this week. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, the verse I mentioned earlier. When Jesus saw the crowds, He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. If you guys will bring the lights down, I want us to take a moment like we've been doing every week to just sit silently and meditate on what God is sharing with us this morning before we worship Here's the first part of the prayer focus I want us to focus on. The first part I want us to to do right now together. Could we ask God to give us compassion for the lost? Compassion that will lead us to do acts of hospitality and goodwill. You know if you have that or not. You might love God and love His Word but not have compassion for people who don't know Him. You might have compassion for people, but not have a love for God's Word to share with them. So can we take a moment, in as much silence, it won't be perfect in that, but let's just take a moment and meditate on what God is saying and what this Word is saying. And let's ask God to give each of us individually compassion for lost people that will lead us to works, good works.